I want to uh, talk to you today about greatness, about what it means to live a life of greatness. And I wonder what you think of when you think of greatness. If you're new to City Church, there is this word that uh, we use around here quite a bit. You may not have heard it yet, uh, but it's the word unlearn. And what we mean by it is that prior to hearing the gospel and prior to believing in Jesus, all of us have ideas about how life works that we have inherited. Uh, maybe we've inherited from our parents. Maybe we've inherited them from uh, teachers. Maybe we've even inherited them just from the culture in which we live. And as we grow up, we just take all of these ideas for granted that they're correct. We assume that they're the right ideas about how life is to be lived. and We base our lives on these ideas. But a funny thing happens... When you believe in Jesus, and when you start to read and hear about the things that he said and did in the New Testament, you begin to realize that Jesus turns many of those ideas completely upside down. And so you, you find yourself having to unlearn a lot of the ideas about life that you have inherited and taken for granted. And I think today's passage is going to be like that for a lot of you. I think Jesus is going to turn some of your ideas about what it means to live a life of greatness upside down. And I think he's going to have you walking out of here this morning, reevaluating the direction that your life is taking and the things that you have been valuing all along. And so if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 9. Uh, Mark chapter 9 this morning. I want to welcome those of you, those of you who are listening to us uh, by the internet or by our City Church app. Hey, by the way, raise your hand if you have the City Church app on your phone or on your iPad. Wow, that's a lot of you. Fantastic. For the rest of you who don't have it, uh, you can download it on your phone or you can download it, um, well, on your iPhone or on your, I think, on your Android phone as well. You can listen to sermons there. You can find out other important things going on in the life of the church through that. Uh, but we'd love for you to download that app. Well, we're in a series that we started uh, last week covering the last eight days of the life of Jesus as recorded in the last half of the Gospel of Mark. We covered the first half of the Gospel of Mark uh, last year. Now we're looking at the last half of the Gospel of Mark. As Jesus travels toward Jerusalem to an appointment with the cross on which he would die, he needs to drastically alter the way his disciples think about greatness if they're going to carry on the revolution that he has begun. And we'll learn three lessons about greatness this morning from the things that Jesus says. First, we're going to learn about the fallen measure of greatness, how a broken and ruined world measures greatness. Second, we're going to learn about the true measures of greatness. Jesus is going to outline four measures of real greatness in people. And finally, we're going uh, to see the ultimate demonstration of greatness, okay? So we're going to talk about the fallen measure of greatness, the true measures of greatness, and the ultimate demonstration of, gracious, uh, excuse me, of greatness. And I want to start uh, this morning with the fallen measure of greatness. Look at chapter 9. Verse 33 of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, they just shared this enormously powerful experience with Jesus when they saw his transfiguration. An experience, by the way, that the other nine disciples did not get to witness. I think that's important. Verse 30, they left that place. 
And they passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, just just a quick comment here. Remember now, the disciples still haven't gotten their collective head around the fact that Jesus isn't going to deliver Israel from political bondage right now. Now, that's what these disciples think they're getting to be a part of. They think they're getting to be a part of a political revolution, which, of course, would naturally mean that they're going to be power brokers within Jesus' kingdom. They're going to ride Jesus' coattails all the way to the top. And in their heads, they're fantasizing about the size of their new offices. They're planning about who's going to chauffeur them around. They're imagining what it's going to be like when all of their buddies that they went to school with see them on CNN. So when verse 32 says that they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about when he said that he was going to be killed and then be raised from the dead, uh, and, that, and, and when it says that they were afraid to ask, don't read it like, that they, like they were afraid of Jesus. Like, he would, like, like if they asked him what he meant, that he'd rip into them or something like that. Because that's, that, Jesus never does that. If you read through the Gospels, he never rebukes anyone who asked a question. So that's not it at all. Here's what it is. The reason they were afraid to ask is because they didn't want to understand what he was talking about because that would completely devastate their plans for their future. You understand that? You got that? They just didn't want to understand. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you just rather stick your head in the sand than knowing what it is that somebody's telling you or what's going to happen or what is happening? You ever been in that situation? Nod your head. Let me know that you're alive. Okay. There you go. Good. Okay, that's where these guys are, okay? Verse 33. They came to uh, to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Verse 34. But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Now, I think this is funny. Twelve grown men all shuffling their feet and looking all sheepish. Jesus says, what were you guys talking about back there on the road? Uh, well, uh, nothing really. Just, uh, nothing. Now, here, now here's what I want you to notice. It's the last word in verse 34. It is the word greatest, greatest. Say that with me, greatest. Not greatness, greatest, right? Who's the greatest? Which of us is the greatest they're asking? Okay, so here's what I want you to make a note of, okay? The fallen measure of greatness is always about comparison. It's always about comparison. That's what they're asking. Which of us is the greatest compared to all of the others? Which of us is the greatest? That's what they're asking. Now, in just a moment, when we pick up the reading again, you're going to notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke any of his disciples for wanting to be great. He's not upset about that. He's not upset about their ambition. Ambition is a good thing. We were created in the image of God, so we were made to live great lives. He's great. We were made to live great lives. But these guys aren't asking how to live a life of greatness. They're asking, and they're arguing about, 
Who, which of them was the great test? Say that with me. Great test, okay? This is how a fallen world measures comparison, uh, greatness, excuse me. How a fallen world measures greatness is by comparison. And the problem with this is, well, really, there are two problems with this as it relates to the revolution of Jesus Christ. First, the essence of comparison, if you think about it, the essence of comparison is idolatry. It's idolatry. You see, you only compare yourself to people who have something you worship. Like you could walk in a friend's house and look at all of his trophies from fishing tournaments and never care that your friend is a better fisherman than you because like you don't, you don't idolize being a great fisherman, okay? Like, like me, for instance. There was a time when I was a kid, like in teenager, I, when I was a teenager, I liked fishing. But I don't really care about fishing anymore. And so like if you told me you're a better fisherman than me, I would not care. I would be like, sure, that's great. However... If you ever said to me, if you ever said to me, I have a better arm than you have, I would say to you, game on, pal. (laughs) Because you see, uh, growing up, I I loved baseball, and uh, I was pretty convinced that I could throw a baseball harder, faster, and more accurately than anyone else. And I compared myself to everyone else and how they could throw. You know, they used to call me, they used to call me rocket arm. And by they, and by they I mean me. I called myself (laughs) rocket arm. That's how that works. So if you told me that you had a better arm than I did, man, game on, I'm going to be very upset because I idolized that. I worshipped that, having a great arm, okay? So you only compare yourself to people who have something that you idolize. And so the essence of comparison is, is, is idolatry. So you, you measure your value as a, a human being by something other than your creator in whose image that you are made. And this is a problem because it will cause great damage uh, to you and it will cause great damage uh, to other people around you. Okay, now here's the other problem. The other problem is that the effect of comparison is disharmony. Disharmony. The essence is idolatry. The effect is disharmony. Notice again what verse 34 says. It says that they had argued with one another. The whole conversation about which of us is the greatest is dividing them. It's creating, it's creating disharmony among them. Why? Well, it's impossible to really care about another person that you feel better than or that you feel inferior to. Because you either look down on them or you want to destroy them. One writer put it this way. Listen to this. In fact, I think we're going to put it up on the screen for you. Comparison is a sower of strife between colleagues, between neighbors, even between friends. It introduces even into the most straightforward of relationships an atmosphere of distrust, of ill ease, and contention and malice until even the most complacent of people will find in self-defense that they too have fame. That's what comparison does. 
And of course, Jesus understands all of this better than anyone else. And so he begins to speak to these men who in the very near future are going to be given the reins over the revolution of Jesus. And so he has to begin now to dismantle their idea that greatness is determined by comparing yourself to other people. Jesus wants them to live great lives But he wants them to do so not measured by comparison, but by, and here's, by the way, this is where we're going into the second point this morning, the true measures of greatness. He wants them to live great lives as measured by these measures of greatness that he's going to lay out. Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now here's the first true measure of greatness. And make a note of this somewhere. It's humility. It's humility. Now, I know that this is countercultural. Nothing about our culture exalts humility. Everything about our culture exalts pride and arrogance. But Jesus says that true greatness is found in humility. Now, here's why. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before. But people who measure their value by a false idol are never secure. Like, they're, they're very fragile people. And they're very self-occupied people because they can lose whatever it is that they idolize. You could go from being very prideful one day to feeling very inferior the next day. A few years ago, Madonna did an interview with Vogue magazine. And uh, in this uh, article, she was talking about her career. And she said something, I want you to understand, I am not making fun of Madonna by what I'm going to read here. I want you to know that she's just expressing uh, something out of the depth of her heart. And I think it's very self-aware what she's about to express. And I think probably more self-aware than many of us in this room. She says this, she says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. You see what her idol is, right? It's like being the greatest. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Now, do you you see what I'm talking about here? Madonna's idol is success, and it never lets her rest. She has to be constantly consumed with evaluating her value because her idol comes and goes, right? You can be more successful, less successful even on a daily basis in your own mind. And that is emotionally consuming to live like that. On the other hand, once you've believed in Jesus, you you realize that not only have you been made in the image of God, but also that you have been redeemed by that same God at the expense of his only son. And so if Jesus is of infinite value to God, 
then you are of infinite value to God, regardless of position, regardless of power, regardless of of prestige, regardless of success. And that value never changes because God never changes. And so there's enormous freedom that comes with that. You don't have to keep measuring yourself. You don't have to keep looking over your shoulder fearful that someone else is going to take your place or worrying about whoever is ahead of you. Being first, being the best, being the greatest, being the most, it doesn't matter anymore. You're free to serve other people, to let other people go first, to be last. Because you're not expending all of your emotional and mental energy trying to validate yourself anymore. Because you've already been validated by the Trinitarian God at the center of the universe. You understand? Yeah. And so where comparison destroys community, humility facilitates community. And Jesus needed his disciples to get this. If they were going to stay together in the face of the opposition that they would soon face as followers of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Okay, now, there's a second lesson that Jesus wants to teach them about greatness besides humility. And in order to teach it, he needs a visual aid. Watch this, verse 36. He took a little child whom he uh, placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, only but the one who sent me. Okay, so write this down. The second measure of of true greatness is selflessness. Selflessness. And let me explain why I say selflessness. The disciples couldn't help but see the point of this lesson as Jesus holds this little, this little child in his arms. I mean, look, if you're worried about prestige and power and rank, you probably aren't going to build an entourage of children. Like, they don't have, it's okay to laugh. It really is. That was funny. It's okay to laugh. Um... Last week at our newcomer's luncheon, I have to tell you this. This is an aside. This has nothing to do with what I was just going to say. Last week at our newcomer's luncheon, there was a young lady that stood up, and she said, I found my way here on Easter. I just was looking for a church. I found my way here. And I said, well, what's kept you here? And she said, she said this. She said, I thought your jokes were funny. (laughs) And I told her, I said, you are now bestowed an honorary membership here at City Church. All right. Okay, so if you're worried about prestige and power and rank, you probably aren't going to build an entourage of children. They, little children, they have no clout. They don't have influence. They can't advance your career. They can't enhance your prestige. Now, of course, Jesus isn't just talking about children. He's using a child here as a symbol of all of the kinds of people who have absolutely nothing that they can offer you. Now, now here again... Jesus is completely uh, upending common thinking about greatness. Greatness in our culture's eyes is about who you identify with, what symbols you wear on your shirts and on your clothes, who you associate with. uh, with. Finish uh, Finish the last phrase of this sentence for me. It's not about what you know. 
It's about who you know, right? That's, that's what greatness is about. It's about who you associate with. Jesus begs to differ. True greatness doesn't measure another person's value on the basis of what they can do for you. Jesus is saying that if a man welcomes the poor and the ordinary, the people who have no influence, who have no wealth, who have no power, who have more needs than things that they can offer you, then he says, you're welcoming me. And more than that, he says, you're welcoming uh, the whole trinity uh, into your midst. Nothing could destroy the forward movement of Jesus' revolution more than the gospel appearing to be an elitist-only movement. In fact, most of the people who were early converts uh, of Christianity were nobodies, like people whose names aren't even recorded in Scripture. And so the disciples needed to be selfless in their interest of people, regardless of what any of those people could offer them selflessness, humility and selflessness. Now, what happens next is is very interesting because one of the disciples actually interrupts Jesus' uh, teaching. And I don't know if he interrupts Jesus because he's uncomfortable with what Jesus is saying. That could be. Maybe he's looking at his own life. Maybe like some of you are right now, and you're like hearing Jesus talk about selflessness, and you're going, man, you know what? The people I associate with, I only associate, people with, uh, I only associate with people who can benefit me in some way. Maybe he was feeling that. Or maybe he thinks like this whole thing that Jesus is talking about, this whole discussion about children, maybe he thinks, uh, you know, this is really a waste of my time. There are more important things to be thinking about. I, I don't know why he does, but, but he, he interrupts Jesus. And Jesus actually uses the interruption to make his point. Verse 38, teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, he says, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, here's the third measure of greatness. And this one, some of you are going to cringe when I say this, but it's okay. Just hang with me for a minute and I'll explain. Third measure of true greatness, inclusivity inclusivity, inclusivity. Now, uh, be careful. I I know some of you are cringing because in our culture today, uh, inclusivity means that everyone, no matter what they believe, no matter what they practice, everybody's right, okay? You can't say that anyone is wrong because whatever anyone believes is as good as whatever you believe, okay? That's not what inclusivity means in this context, okay? Whoever this other person is who's driving out demons in Jesus' name is clearly concerned about the well-being of these poor, uh, uh, just beaten-down, demon-possessed people. And he wants to heal them of their misery. And it's likely that whoever this other person is, it's likely that he's seen Jesus do it before, and he's sincerely copying what Jesus did to help these people. John's worried that this guy isn't one... Did you notice what he says? He's not one of He's not one of us, Jesus. So we shut his ministry down. 
And Jesus says, no, don't, don't do that. If he's casting out demons in my name, he's obviously got some faith in his heart because God doesn't respond to anything but faith. And so Jesus is like, no, don't, don't shut him down. You see, here's the thing. One of the things that Jesus needed his disciples to understand as his revolution was going forward is that there are going to be people who are not us whom God can use to advance the revolution of Jesus too. Maybe they didn't go to the same seminary. Maybe they go to a different church. Maybe they dress differently. Maybe they wear a man bun Because those people are really different. <laughs> maybe, they, maybe, they're, maybe they're Calvinists when you're an Arminian. Maybe they're Charismatics when you're a cessationist. Doctrine matters. It really does. But we should have a generous orthodoxy when it comes to the people that we're willing to work with in Jesus' name. This is why our vision statement over here says that we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. Notice what it says. Through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are good churches all over this area that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who worship differently than we do, or who believe something different than we do on a relatively minor point of doctrine. And if the revolution of Jesus is going to go forward, we must not be so exclusive that if anyone doesn't belong to us, they can't possibly be used by God. We have to be inclusive. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. And it's what he wants us to understand. If the revolution of Jesus is going to go forward. Here's the fourth measure of true greatness. It's found in verse 42. Jesus says, and by the way, this is a complicated passage. I'm not going to have time to go into all of the things in it, but I'll try to give you the big picture of it in just a moment. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. That is serious talk. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. I want you to write this fourth measure of true greatness down. Um, Sort of the flip side of one of the other things that we talked about earlier. This one is other-centeredness. Other-centeredness. You know, we talked about selflessness. That's Sort of like one side of the coin, other-centeredness is the other side of that coin. I want you to remember the context. The disciples here, they're comparing themselves to one another. They're arguing about which of them is the greatest. Now, I want you to imagine for the moment that they were to continue arguing like this among themselves. And that being the greatest was the most important thing to these 12 men. How far will the revolution of Jesus get if the main thing the disciples are consumed with is being the greatest? seeking to benefit their name and reputation at the cost of people who want to follow Jesus sincerely. Why, they might even become 
televangelists selling prayer rags to people. That's what they might become. Jesus wants them to understand how much he values the people whom they're going to be leading. And so he warns them about taking advantage of or misleading uh, these people that they will lead. He says it would be better if a large stone were tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. I mean, that's, that's, that's serious talk. And he tells them, he says, look, this is so important to me that if there is some part of your life that would cause you to want to take advantage of or to otherwise hurt the people that you lead, here's what he's saying. Cut it out of your life. Now, of course, get this, this is hyperbole. When he talks about, you know, cutting off your hand or your foot or, you know, poking out your eyes or whatever, that's, that's hyperbole. He's not teaching self-mutilation. Now, I will tell you that over... Uh, uh, throughout Christian history, there have been some people who did not understand that he was teaching, uh, that he was using hyperbole here, and they have literally maimed themselves, thinking that they were doing this in the name of Jesus. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. This is hyperbole. What he's trying to get across is the importance of their reputation and their integrity and the way they teach and the way that they lead the other people that are going to come to Christ. He wants them to understand how important that is to the revolution of Jesus. The movement of Jesus Christ will rise or it will fall on their reputation and the way that they treat other people. That's what he's trying to get across. Look at verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's using salt as a metaphor here for, for um, like, being tested. Um, uh, he's saying that, that all of the disciples and really anybody who follows Christ is going to be tested by trials. That's the cost of following Jesus. But he's also saying, hey, j- judge yourself. Be self-aware. Practice self-examination and, and repentance and, and confession. Because what you do and the person that you are is going to affect the people that you lead in my, revela- in my revolution. Be drastic if you need to be to keep your integrity for the sake of other people. Uh, because, you see, we're all interconnected. Like, your sin affects someone else. Your sin isn't just like your thing, you know. Some people always say, well, you know, um, if, if you want to do it and it doesn't hurt anybody else, go ahead and do it. Well, you know what? What you do hurts someone else in some way, shape, or form. Everything that we do affects other people. Jesus says, I want my leaders to understand your integrity matters because it affects other people. Be other-centered. Now, I think all of you would agree that, what, that Jesus' definition of greatness is utterly countercultural. Jesus was teaching this to his disciples because they were going to be the leaders of his movement to that generation. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the leaders of Jesus' revolution to the next generation of people that will believe in him. Jesus wants you to understand 
the true measures of greatness so that you don't waste your life away on pettiness, comparing yourself to other people about things that don't really matter. He wants you to live a life of greatness that matters for the greatest cause on earth, the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what he wants. I want you to see that all of this isn't just talk. Here's the final point that that I think Jesus wants us to see today. And it is the ultimate demonstration of greatness. The ultimate demonstration of greatness. Look back up one more time at verse 31. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is pointing his disciples to the cross as the ultimate demonstration of greatness. God in the person of Jesus is going to humble himself even to death on a cross. It will be the only completely selfless act of love that the world has ever known. To the great surprise of the Jewish people, Jesus' death will be so inclusive that it will be for the benefit of both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, it will be for the benefit of every nation, every people, every tribe on the planet. The Apostle Paul later says in Philippians that every tongue and every tribe on earth will one day exalt Jesus and sing his praise. That's how inclusive it is. And it will also be other-centered. All that he does is for our benefit. The one who never deserved to die did die for all of us who did deserve to die. The one who never sinned died for those of us who are sinners. That's all of us. Jesus willingly gave himself for you and for me when he died on the cross. And what I want you to understand is that the cross changes our entire understanding of greatness. Whatever image you have in your mind of greatness, I don't know what that image is. Maybe it's the kind of car you drive. Maybe it's the clothes that you wear. Maybe it's the house that you live in. Maybe it's the amount of money in your bank account. Maybe it's the position you hold. Maybe it's the power that you have. Whatever the image is of greatness that you have in your mind, Jesus wants to change that image. He, he's changed the idea He says, no, it's not about comparison. Now he wants to change the image. And the image that he wants you to have of greatness is the cross of Jesus Christ. There, the greatest became the least. The first became the last. And the sinless became sin. So that you and I could become people of greatness. We were going this morning to take communion to celebrate this, but because of the time, we're going to put that off till next week. So ushers, feel free to just kind of relax. You're not going to have to come up and and pass the communion element. But I would like for you to do this with me. I'd like for you to bow your heads. I'd like for you to think about this. Whatever's, I'd like for you to just kind of pull up the movie screen of your mind. And I'd like for you to put up there on that screen an image of greatness that you have. Whatever the image of greatness is that you came into the room this morning with, maybe it's more than one. Maybe there are multiple images of greatness. Is it a house? Is it a car? Is it a position? 
What is your image of great? Is it beauty? What is your image of greatness? Who, who represents that? What represents that? And as you, as you pull that up on the sort of the movie screen of your mind, I want you to tell yourself, preach this to yourself right now in this very moment, that the cross of Christ changes your perspective of greatness. Just, just say that to yourself. What Jesus did on the cross changes my perspective of greatness. And now I just want you to kind of mentally... I want you to flip that image that's in your mind. I want you to just, you know, like, like, like click that image away and I want you to put a new image up there of greatness and that image is the cross. Would you put it there in your mind right now? Would you focus on the cross as the image of greatness? And Lord Jesus Christ, in this moment, as we change um, this, these images that are so powerful to us, uh, like the ideas that we've carried around through all of our life that we just have assumed are correct about greatness. There are these images that mediate that, those ideas uh, to us as well, and our emotions get all wrapped up in this. And so, Lord, this morning, through the power of your Spirit, would you begin, and it's a long work, but would you begin now to replace the images of greatness that people have in their minds with the cross? And would they look to the cross as the greatest image of greatness in all of human history? Lord, would you do that? Lord, for those that are here today that have never, have never believed in Jesus, would you, Lord, today, would you just uh, convey to them through the power of your Spirit that... Uh, that Christianity is not about my performance, it's not about, it's not about their performance, it's not about being good enough for Jesus, it's about believing that Jesus Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin, for my sin, for their sin. And Lord, would you cause them to believe on Jesus' performance, not their own performance today? And as a result, would you give them the assurance that they have eternal life? And for those of us who do believe in Jesus and have believed in Jesus, Lord, would you cause us to just keep the cross in the center of our mind. And that we would allow that to change our perspective of greatness. And our Lord, it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship this morning, that we pray, and that we pray for the revolution that you started over 2,000 years ago. Let us be part of that revolution. Let us live lives of greatness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.